Welcome to See Uncovered, a place where you'll find the stories of proven entrepreneurs. I'm your host, Ashley Henschel. So welcome to See Uncovered by Create Every Opportunity. Zach Sarf and I created CEO and devote so much time to it because we want to solve a very big problem, the lack of financial literacy by high school students. We wanted to become the change and we want to see in the world. CEO provides valuable advice and knowledge to students in schools across the country, knowledge we wish we had when we were in school. Our mission is now to help others create every opportunity. Today we have on Jeff Salinga. He has written about higher education for more than two decades. He's the author of two New York Times bestsellers and is contributor to The Atlantic, as well as a special advisor for innovation and professor of practice at Arizona State University. He also co-hosts the podcast, Future You. Thank you for coming on, Jeff. It's great to be here. Thank you. You're welcome. I want to get started with your background and kind of how you got started and sparked your passion for writing. So I wanted to be a journalist probably since I was in seventh grade. I just was fascinated by the news. Remember reading the the newspaper with my, the old fashioned newspaper with my dad in the morning before school and watching the nightly news each day. And so I uh, wanted to become a journalist and kind of pursued that activity through high school and through college and worked for daily newspapers and then the Chronicle of Higher Education uh, for more than 15, 16 years, and then decided to focus on writing books after my first book came out in 2013. So it's really kind of a lifelong passion about writing and then taking a much deeper look at the state of higher education, in particular with my writing, uh, starting in about uh, you know, 1997, 98. What made you want to write Who Gets In and Why? And why about higher education? Why was that your go-to? So higher education, I kind of fell into writing about. I went to school in Ithaca, New York, and my first job, even when I was a senior in high school, was working for the local newspaper covering Cornell University. But then I kind of did other things, covered technology, covered business for a couple of years, and then ended up at the Chronicle of Higher Education Mm -hmm. because I wanted to be in D.C. And after being there for a couple of years, I realized that this is a kind of a fascinating industry. We don't think of it that way. You know, there are 4,000 colleges and universities in the U.S. alone, 20 million plus students, uh, you know, kind of hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars spent on this industry, mm-hmm. you know, trillion plus worth of debt, right? So just thinking of all those big numbers, you know, this is an industry, um, much like retail or the airlines or, you know, healthcare. And then, you know, when I wanted to write Who Gets In and Why, I was really trying to explain one of the things I've done in the last couple of years is to really try to explain this industry to outsiders, because it really is an insular industry Mm -hmm. in so many ways. And, you know, so many people that I met thought it was so much harder to get into college than it was years ago. And I didn't necessarily think that, but I wanted to kind of show them inside the process. And that's what led me to uh, who gets in and why. And in your book, do you go through the process of how to get into college? What topics do you cover? Basically, you know, the process starting before students even start to look. Mm -hmm. Uh, I spend a lot of time, for example, on marketing and how colleges find students to market to and how they market to students like their marketing credit cards. And then I follow students and the process through application and kind of what are admissions officers looking for. It's really kind of an inside look at an industry. Mm -hmm. I got the idea for it. 
after reading Fast Food Nation, which was really kind of an inside look at the fast food industry from a variety of different characters. And I tried to do the same thing in, in who gets in and why. So I followed a group of high school students. I followed a group of admissions officers. I followed a group of people who influence those industries, whether that's the rankings or whether that's the testing agencies like the SAT or the ACT. So it was really to try to tell the story of an industry through the people inside. When you were kind of shadowing and looking at those colleges, what was the biggest takeaway that you had when you were there? The biggest takeaway is that it is a business and it operates as a business and that College admissions is really not about the student. It's about the institution on the other side. Mm -hmm. And that institution on the other side has priorities. uh, And the priorities are filled through the admissions office. And so they're constantly looking for whether more full-paid students. They're constantly looking for more students from certain states, athletes, legacies, first-generation students, whatever they might be. Mm -hmm. And that is being fulfilled through the admissions office. And so we have this idea that admissions is a meritocracy. It's supposed to be fair. It never was fair. It never will be fair. I honestly had no idea that it wasn't about the student when I was going into it. And we focused so much on writing those personal letters about who we are. Would you say extracurriculars in that personal letter really take a play in getting into college or are there other factors? There are definitely a lot of factors. I think the biggest factor that goes into admissions is the high school transcript and the grades on that high school transcript. So what are the courses you take in high school and what are the grades? Because what they're trying to find out is over the course of four years of high school, did you challenge yourself? And when you challenged yourself, how did you do? You know, what are the courses you took? Did you decide to go deep in a subject uh, and things like that. It's not that extracurricular and essays and recommendations don't count, but mm-hmm. really what kind of gets you closest to the finish line is that high school transcript and those grades. In your book, you discuss overmatching. Can you explain what that is? Well, there's undermatching and there's overmatching. And so what, what ends up happening is that sometimes students get into a very selective college and they decide not to go there. Other students, sometimes by the fact that they're an athlete and so they have a little bit of a hook to get in, or they're a full-pay student, and again, they have a hook to get in, sometimes overmatch, meaning they go to a school where academically they're kind of uh, swimming upstream sometimes, right, where they're having difficulty. And so we see this on both ends, where it's not a good fit necessarily academically. On the undermatching side, you're kind of leading. If you're swimming downstream, you're you're kind of the leader in that. And if you're overmatching, you're kind of in many ways swimming upstream and really struggling to keep going. Mm-hmm. Have you seen that certain schools pick from a certain area more so than others when they're accepting? Um, I think that colleges are very, especially selective colleges, they really want to have geographic diversity that mm-hmm. includes both in the U.S. and outside the U.S. And so they look very carefully at where they're pulling students from. When they announce their class, they're very proud, for example, that they have students from you know all 50 states and that this many countries and things like that. Yeah, It's definitely something that selective colleges look for. In your opinion, where do you stand on ACTs and SATs, and do you think they should change? Well, so right now we have about 1,600 colleges that have gone test optional, Mm -hmm. uh, meaning that they don't require test scores for admission. About 600 of them went test optional during the the pandemic. Uh, It's clear that testing is not going to come back in the same way that it had before the pandemic. When you talk to admissions officers, 
they like the flexibility that they have in picking a class. Now, when you talk to parents and students, Mm -hmm. they don't love test optional all the time because it doesn't give them the clarity that they feel like they need. Should I apply there or not? Should I submit a test score or not? Many of them would prefer either, you know, go test blind, meaning you don't take the test into consideration at all, which the University of California system is doing, or require the test. But again, colleges are trying to fulfill their needs. Their interest is not necessarily in the applicant. Mm -hmm. It's much more, can I fulfill my needs? And test optional gives them the maximum flexibility in fulfilling those needs. What role do finances play, whether a student gets accepted or not? Uh, At some schools, it plays a large role where they might be need aware, as they call them, where they're looking at a student's need and deciding whether they should get in. There are very few schools that are need blind and promise to give students their full demonstrated financial need. There's Mm -hmm. only about 50 schools in the country that do that. So most schools are need blind, meaning that they don't take need into consideration in admissions. But when they do that, by the way, they may not give you all the money you need to go there. And so in many ways, they sometimes call it admit deny, meaning we admit you, but we're not giving you enough money to really come here. So we're in essence denying you. I know so many students need financial aid, and that really takes account into applying to a school. Have you seen, is it hard to get that financial aid if it's an Ivy or if it's a state school? It depends on how different schools define their financial aid program. Some give out a lot of merit-based aid or aid that's not based on need. Mm -hmm. You'll see that among a lot of less selective privates, for example, in some publics, the University of Alabama, for example, gives a lot of merit aid to try to attract students to the university. There are very few schools that give out most of their aid to need and promise, no matter what your income level is, that they are going to fulfill that need. Um, Mm -hmm. Again, we're probably talking about 50 schools Most of those are at the very top of the rankings. They have tens of billions of dollars in endowment that allow them to do that. What should a parent's role be in applying for college? I think that parents should play a supporting role. I don't think they necessarily should drive the process. As I always remind parents, this is not their college search. Some parents may regret where they went to college. Some parents might love where they went to college. Mm -hmm. They want their kids to go to the same places. This is not your college search as a parent. Now, that doesn't mean you don't have a piece in the process. Obviously, you may be paying the bill. um, So it's critical that you have some skin in the game. And obviously, you have decades of experience behind you. You kind of know what students should be looking for, what your kids should be looking for in a a college. So I feel like it should be really a supporting role Mm -hmm. in terms of giving advice, putting some guardrails essentially on the search, but not driving the search. Have you had an experience in the transfer process? And is it harder to transfer and get into an Ivy League or would you say easier? I think that it's very difficult to get in from a, uh, from a to transfer. I think last year it was celebrated that Princeton accepted something like 14 or 15 uh, <laughs> transfer students, right? Most of them are basically overbooked mm-hmm. on the undergraduate side. And so they have so many more freshman applications than they know what to do with. And they're not taking a lot of transfers. Mm-hmm. Now, Princeton and all the other Ivies have come under a lot of fire for that, that they should be taking more transfer students. And they're trying to work that out. But again, the numbers are so small. Yeah. Since COVID has happened, how have you seen college admissions change? Well, I think the biggest thing is what I mentioned already is test optional, right? Mm -hmm. Testing went optional for 600 colleges during the pandemic because students couldn't get a test literally. And then colleges really felt that they could assess students without the test scores. 
a lot more students applied to schools because they couldn't necessarily visit them. But a lot of schools then started to visit students more remotely and virtually. So students now have access to more schools than they ever would have been before. Mm -hmm. They don't necessarily have to visit them in person or admissions officers don't necessarily have to visit their high school. They can now actually talk to students more on on an individual basis because of the rise of technology. And I don't think that would have happened without the pandemic. So what advice would you have for students who want to go to a school but are not sure on what major to choose? Well, I think that we spend um, too much time really thinking about what we should major in. And, mm-hmm. and you know, 35% of first-year students switch their major after one year anyway, according to the education department. Most people, if you ask the average person who's now working in their 30s or 40s, does their major have anything to do with their job? And most of the time, they're going to say no. So I think we we focus too much on the major because we think a major leads to a job. Yeah. Really, what we should do is focus on the learning and the skills needed, sometimes which come across majors. Um, or what are the skills that you could get, whether it's communication or problem solving or project management. And by the way, could you get those outside the classroom as well? Mm-hmm. Often what you could get through extracurricular, co-curricular activities or athletics and things like that. In the application process, have you seen help in high schools with individual students in applying, or is it more so coming from home? Uh, I think that it's a mixture of both. I think that at some schools, there is uh, an interest and support for college going. Mm -hmm. Um, And as a result, they put a lot of counseling behind that. But most public school counselors in particular are overwhelmed and overworked. Their caseloads are huge, hundreds of students per counselor. They have to do social emotional counseling. Mm -hmm. They have to focus on uh, getting students the right courses in high school. And then they focus on college going, especially, and then they probably only focus it on for a subset of students. So Mm -hmm. unfortunately, then those students are left to look to home. And if they're first generation and their parents didn't go to college, it's a really complicated process. Um, And that's when we hope, and unfortunately, it doesn't happen enough that community-based organizations uh, or others that kind of sit in the middle will help students out. I know when I was going through it, I was very focused on something called Naviance. And it shows you where you kind of fall into in getting into a school. Would you say that's an accurate database? Uh, It's only as good as the data that goes in there. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so remember when you're looking at Naviance, for example, you're only looking at the students in your high school who apply to to those institutions. Mm -hmm. And what I think ends up happening is you have this echo chamber in high schools where students year after year are applying to the same schools. And that puts the data in Navion. So when you're looking at a school, maybe you have an interest in, but not a lot of students have applied there. You're like, yeah, maybe I won't apply there as a result. And that's unfortunate because what I think ends up happening then is you have like a recency bias where all the students are applying to the same set of schools. Mm -hmm. And what I've seen is when you don't fall under a certain data point, you feel discouraged to not even to apply to the school just because you haven't seen it. Would you say Naviance is helping or hurting these students? I mean, I think that I think Naviance is an interesting tool. I think, unfortunately, what it does is it drives too many decisions. So the Mm -hmm. first decision it drives is where am I going to apply? So if, again, if you have a small high school and students only apply to a set of 10 or 12 schools, those are going to be the schools that are in Naviance. And there's going to be a bias to apply to those schools because that's where the data is. Mm -hmm. The second bias 
is that if you look and you say, well, I have this GPA and this test score and nobody from my high school has ever been admitted, or at least last year was not admitted to that call, the college I want to apply to with that test score or that grade, you're going to say, oh, I'm not going to apply now. So it discourages you from applying. Yeah. So I think on, on two levels, it hurts in that it excludes a lot of colleges I think soon should be considering on one level. And on the other level, it is discouraging them in some cases from applying to certain schools because of past behavior mm-hmm. of those students. Why would you say the price right now of colleges at an all-time high? Uh, you know, college is, you know, it's an expensive proposition. It's very people-focused. It's very much like healthcare in that way, where, you know, in healthcare, you have doctors and nurses. In higher ed, you have professors and a lot of staff that surround them. Mm-hmm. We haven't been able to have the, the advances in productivity in higher ed like we have in other industries. So in other words... Today, it still takes one professor to teach a dozen students, Mm -hmm. just like it did in 1980, just like it did in 1880. Mm -hmm. Now, online obviously allows you to reach more students at a much larger scale, but a lot of students either don't want to learn exclusively online uh, or they want a mixture of both. And then on top of that, the services that most students at a residential college in particular are asking for have just increased, right? They want more academic advising. They want more career advising. They want more mental health advising. Mm -hmm. They want all the amenities. They want nice residence halls and nice places to eat and great libraries and things like that. And all of that costs money. And there's been a little bit of an arms race around this over the last uh, 20 years. When I was a senior, the pandemic just hit and most of my classes went hybrid. And a lot of us felt it was harder to learn in a hybrid setting because we weren't forced to be into a room and to engage. Have you seen a fallout trend or a grade disparity since the hybrid model has come about? Um, I think it's too early to tell uh, Mm -hmm. what has happened there. I think one of the interesting things that from a hybrid perspective is that it opened up the possibilities for both professors on one side and students on the other side to think differently about how they want to teach and how they want to learn. And so now I think that students like that optionality. They like the option of, oh, a certain day of the week, I can't make get to class. And I would love the optionality of, of zooming in. Mm-hmm. Professors think about different ways of teaching and reaching students. They think about the idea of you know meeting students after class through Zoom and things like that. So I think it's opened up on both sides, but I think it's yeah. too early to know about what the real outcomes of either fully online or hybrid education, at least at the scale that we've done it during the pandemic, mm-hmm. has had. You know, we have a lot of research on online education with adult students, with uh, institutions that are mostly online, we know we know the success rate is pretty high for a certain type of student mm-hmm. who is motivated um, at certain types of institutions. But this has been kind of a grand experiment over the yeah. last couple of years, and we don't quite know what we're going to get, I don't think, for a couple more years. In your opinion, do you think charging the same for a hybrid course versus an in-person course. I've heard a lot of people say, how could that be? How can I be paying to sit I, you know, at home? So I, it is. And, and I think that higher education has for a long time, quote unquote, made money on online courses. Mm-hmm. Online courses at scale do cost less than you know in-person courses. They cost a lot of money to start though. And if you're not doing it at scale, they cost just as much as in-person or hybrid mm-hmm. courses. But I do think that over time, there will need to be a 
bigger differentiation yeah. of prices because I think you're right. I think that there will be kind of the luxury experience in person um, mm-hmm. and there will be kind of the less luxurious experience online um, and that you'll have to pay less for that. What would you change about college admissions if you were able to? Um, I would make it a lot less, have a lot less friction in the system. You know, there's 4,000 institutions. You have to try to figure out like, what's the right fit? You have to go visit them maybe. Then you have to apply. You have to wait a couple of months to maybe even find out if you get accepted. Then you have to wait to get a financial aid package. It takes a long time Mm -hmm. and there's a lot of process to it. And you're never quite sure if it's the right fit. And so I think that if I were to kind of redesign the system, I would love to have a system that at least makes it a little bit easier to narrow the focus of students. Because we talked about Naviance, for example, which helps narrow the focus, Mm -hmm. I think, incorrectly for students. But so, for example, could we say, I'm kind of interested in this campus could you recommend similar campuses to me? Almost like a recommendation engine, yeah. like you would see on Netflix or, or Amazon. You know, could we have algorithms? I, I don't want us to so narrow it that students only apply to, you know, one or two schools, but I think we have to figure out a way to make the universe of thousands of schools a lot smaller for most students who find it confusing. I completely agree. I feel it's so overwhelming when you're in that moment in high school and your senior year is coming up and you have a billion schools in the country and you just don't know which one to go to. And I know a lot of people are missing that guidance. Where do you see the future of education? I think that the future is going to be one that's a lot less one size fits all. Mm -hmm. And I think you're going to see students who are going full time. I think you're going to see students going full time in person, some online, some hybrid some in much shorter spurts than we're seeing now. So this idea of like a two-year degree or a four-year degree might be a 10-month certificate. that, And then maybe you go back and you, you get more of that. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I think that this idea that everyone follows kind of the same pathway is not going to be the same in the, in the future. What skills would you say has contributed to your success? Huh, that's a great question. Curiosity, probably. It's probably more of a mindset Mm -hmm. than it is a specific skill. But I'm constantly wanting to learn something new, uh, learn about a new field, learn about a new person, uh, and and really just start to ask questions. Uh, So curiosity has always kind of been interesting to me. And and it's probably why I became a journalist originally, Mm -hmm. because you get to, you have permission to ask questions all the time, but that's probably the skill that I think over time has, has treated me well. Do you have any advice for putting yourself out there and taking a leap on maybe something you're a little apprehensive about? I think that I have the privilege of, of taking chances because I've had a, you know, a long and successful and deep career in one field. Mm-hmm. You know, there's a lot of debate, I think, among journalists in particular about whether, or not only in journalism, but in almost every field, you know, should you be narrow or should you be wide? It's kind of almost like in college admissions. Mm-hmm. Should you be kind of like a well-rounded student or should you be a really focused student on one particular thing? And and I think of it in similar ways in, in my own career. I'm able to take chances because I have a platform. You know, I, I have a podcast, I have a newsletter, I have multiple books on one subject, and I have an expertise that has been developed over, you know, two plus decades. That gives me 
I think, a lot more um, security and permission to take chances. And I think it's a lot harder now for a lot of other people in their careers, uh, especially if they want to switch fields or they want to switch jobs. Uh, That security is not there necessarily like it used to be. Lastly, if you could give a piece of advice to a teenager college version of yourself, what would you tell him? Patience. I think that if anything has probably, um, you know, changed my career, it's sometimes the lack of patience. Um, And thankfully, I have mentors um, and people around me. And that's another piece of advice is always have mentors, always have people that could give you advice. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, at the end of the day, you're going to have to make your own decisions. But I think the piece of advice that I've been given over and over again is one of patience. And every time I've been patient in something in my career, it has paid off. And every time I've made a quick decision about something, not that it hasn't paid off, but um, there have been some regrets, to be honest. Well, thank you so much, Jeff, for coming on and talking to us about college admissions. We've loved learning about your story. And everyone who's listening in, please check out the episode on Apple Music and Spotify. Thank you again. No problem. It was great to be with you. Thank you for having me. Thanks for listening to See Uncovered. You can check out more at www.createeveryopportunity.org. Thanks again.